Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, After having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and I'm excited that you're listening in for season four, where each month I'm co-hosting this podcast with a different young woman. My special co-host shares her faith story and questions related to spiritual matters, and we're inviting special guests on to share their stories and also address some of my co-hosts' honest questions. I want to say a quick thank you to those of you who are investing in this podcast through Patreon. Your financial support is greatly appreciated. And if you're interested in finding out more about how you can help keep this podcast on the air, um, you can find out more information on JanelleWood.com or FindingSomethingReal.com. Today, we're back with this month's special co-host, Bernice. Bernice is a Christian and is dedicated to following Christ. But as she shared in our first episode this month, she's been through some hard church stuff. And as a result, she has some questions about the future of the church. I appreciate her honesty and her insight, as I've shared before. And if you haven't already listened to Bernice share her story, I hope you take a listen to that episode linked in today's show notes. So Bernice, welcome back. Hi, I'm glad to be back. (laughs) Well, Bernice, I think this may be an understatement, but I think you're a little excited about our conversation that we're about to have today. You do not even understand. Um, Without giving too much away, tell me a little am bit. Am I allowed to say who our guest is? Because it's a big freaking sure. deal. So yeah, we go are ahead. interviewing Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Berenger, who they together wrote this year a book um, called A Church Called Tove. This book is, I think, tremendously helpful for churches as they're trying to navigate and identify um, where they have toxic and tove, which is the Hebrew word for good, beautiful cultures in their systems. And so I think it's a really important book, especially in light of so many things that have been going on in our culture, um, particularly within our church cultures. And I think it's a really accessible book. It's very much at the level of a lay person or a a clergy, anyone can read this book. And so I have been personally um, very encouraged by it and by other work, uh, other works of Scott McKnight. And so I am pumped. Well, uh, it's funny because in our very first conversation, 
you mentioned this book. You mentioned it again when we recorded. Um, and so when I called you, I tried to keep it a secret from you for some time because I was so excited. Uh, I'd never heard of a church called Tove. I didn't even know what Tove meant. Uh, I find that most people don't. But uh, That's right. I started... <laughs> I started looking into it, found out that a friend of mine, Amber Cullum, who hosts the Grace Enough podcast, um, big fan of uh, Scott and Laura's work here. And uh, she goes, hey, I, I could probably put you in contact with them. And so shout out to Amber. Um, thank you so much, Amber, for connecting me to these two. Uh, I'm really excited to chat about this. But I know, Bernice, uh, when you and I talked and I said, hey, uh, this interview that we have coming up is actually these people that you think uh, wrote this incredible work. Uh, it was like the best reaction ever. <laughs> so um, anyway, I wanted to just real quick uh, introduce our guests a little more formally. Laura Berenger is an outspoken advocate for wounded resistors of institutional abuse. She previously co-authored the children's version of the Jesus Creed and wrote a teacher's guide to accompany the book. She's published articles for the Jesus Creed and the Englewood Review of Books, and her writing has been featured in various places. She's a graduate of Wheaton College. Scott McKnight is a New Testament scholar who has written widely on the historical Jesus and Christian spirituality. He's a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Illinois. He has written more than 80 books, including the popular The Jesus Creed, which won an award from Christianity Today in 2004. Bernice and I are honored to have you both here. Scott and Laura, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, Bernice just shared uh, quite a bit about your book, but I'd love to hear from your own lips. What is A Church Called Tov? What is it about? Go ahead, Dad. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, it is a book that describes toxicity in churches, the major characteristics of toxicity, and suggests or replaces them with virtues of tov or goodness. And we, we latched onto this word tov because it all began with the story of Willow Creek, a, a megachurch in Chicagoland, when it was discovered, or at least it was reported in the Chicago Tribune, that the pastor, Bill Hybels, was being accused by multiple women of sexual inappropriate behaviors. And um, Laura and I uh, talked about this, and the result was uh, I had a blog post um, at least three months later in which I suggested that what churches need is goodness. And the number of people who responded to me about that idea of goodness, um, put that term on the back burner for me that I thought, I, I've got to think about this more. And eventually we came up with a book, a church called Tove. We had to convince the publisher that we could use, use a <laughs> Hebrew word in the title. And, and they used the term all the time now. They like the term hmm. and they were against it. And I said, just you just watch. People will start using this term because I experienced this mm -hmm. with my classes. So, um, and we wanted the book not to be an expose of Willow Creek or any other church out by your area. We would have written about Mark Driscoll probably, but um, yeah. we wanted it to be redemptive. So we focused on the characteristics of a Tove church and a Tove culture. Hmm. 
Yeah. Laura, how did you get involved in this project? Well, the night that the article broke about Willow Creek was, it's still one that is kind of seared in my memory. Um, Just remembering the disbelief that I felt seeing the headline, just the headline alone about Bill Hybels and sexual allegations against him was alarming enough. But then reading the article and recognizing the names of the people that were making the accusations was frankly disorienting. It was the first time that I had experienced a church calling the accusers liars and colluders. And the back and forth was my dad and I, we, our family talked about this all the time with, mm. you know, what's going to happen? Is the church going to finally tell the truth? And so the way that I got involved was knowing the women, but my dad would say I was a, <laughs> I was a pest pushing him to write about it because it felt like Willow Creek was just, they were burying stories women had been silenced they just wanted it to go away and it it the story just kind of fell away and I felt like somebody needed to say something and my dad had the wisdom to share so eventually after all my pastoring he agreed to write (laughs) wow has this been a hard book to write because I know just reading it and maybe I'll share this in a minute but it's been a challenge to read it's um there's mixed feelings associated with um when you read stuff about the church because as believers we are part of that church you know what i mean and there's just this feeling of oh it's not supposed to be this way um was it hard to write and have you received any backlash because of writing it from writing well i would say yes it was hard to write in the sense that um we had to say things that were unpleasant uh we didn't we didn't really tell things that weren't known to other people already in the newspapers. Although one story we tell of Carrie in this sto- in this book is a story that was not publicly known. Uh, it was known in some circles, but not not uh, in public. Um, but you know, Janelle, the issue is uh, uh, Laura and I and and Chris, my wife, had dinner the other night with a couple who are whistleblowers in another situation in, in the church. And I told them, I said, if you become a whistleblower and you begin to talk about this church and this pastor, you're going to get blowback. It's, it's part of the game that you're going to end up having to play. But I, I, I said, who is going to stand for the women if it's not the people who have a platform to stand for them? Who is going to stand for victims? You know, if we all say, I don't want to get involved because it's involved so much blowback, then the perpetrator wins and the victims lose over and over and over again. So it was an act in that sense. It wasn't difficult so much as it was an act of of obedience to do what is right and to tell the truth. Yeah. Well, and Janelle, I think it's interesting too what you say that it's a particularly difficult book to read because um, you two, when you wrote the book, you dedicated it to the wounded resistors, the wounded healers. And when I read this book, having been, um, having, being in that position of having 
I received all the blowback, no longer being in my community of faith, having to leave after having spoken up. To me, this book was a balm. It was not difficult to read. It was an incredibly validating, um, incredibly healing, mm. uh, much different than, than the experience you're describing, Janelle. Hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting because, first of all, I love your book. <laughs> I think having grown up in the church, um, I can recall experiences going in, like having issues. And I'm not talking about sexual abuse. I, that's a whole different level. Um, but your book does uh, address some of these other things like power abuse and silencing people, telling people to get in line or like indicators that there's some other things going on and maybe don't point to something as horrific as sexual abuse, but definitely are checks in someone's spirit, right? So when you encounter something like that, and you go to ministry leaders, um, and you're reminded of what Jesus prayed on the night he was betrayed, that he prayed for unity, and uh, divisionism from, uh, you know, from the Lord, which are things that I have actually experienced, right? Like, it feels uncomfortable to read and and what I was thinking about when I was reading this book, uh, Scott and Laura, was um, years ago, like a decade ago, I remember going to a really good therapist and we were talking and I was sharing about some hurt that I had experienced in a relationship that really meant a lot to me. And my therapist was validating my pain. And then I started to get concerned. I thought, well, I, I don't want to vilify this person. So I started like minimizing and saying, well, it wasn't really that bad. Or maybe it was partly my fault, like all these different things. And eventually my therapist stopped me and she said, Janelle, <laughs> it's okay to criticize, to see discernment, to point out truth um, and, and call out the good, but recognize the bad. And that's a different thing. Um, but I think Am I right in saying I, I can't be the only person? I mean, I've talked to other Christians about the good, like how excited I am about this book, but there is that sense of, oh, you know, like this is a hard topic. Yeah. Um, am I the no, first one no. who said that to you? No, we've had, <laughs> we've had some people, yeah. you know, who've said, we wish you hadn't used names or who have said, uh, you know, why, why do you want to criticize the church? Well, you know, the response to that, and I think, Janelle, you've already said it, is, well, I think of this. Uh, did Isaiah love Israel and Judah? You know, he let them have it, too. So I believe that to love the church requires those who see injustices to speak up about it. So it is an act of love and not hatred and anger. Uh, there's anger involved that is appropriate. Transition anger is what Martha Nussbaum calls it. Um, yeah. Is that we, we've had to speak up because there were injustices that were inappropriate, that people needed justice on their side, that the victims needed someone to stand up for them. And uh, in speaking up for them is critique of those who committed the injustices, but it's because we love the church and neither one of us, Laura, neither Laura nor I have any hatred toward Willow Creek at all. Um, we hope it does well, but Willow Creek did the wrong thing with women and who is gonna speak up 
uh, that can be heard. And I was I was a person, I think, that had the opportunity to use my platform, a blog, mm -hmm. and eventually a book uh, to speak up about yeah. it. And I've had leaders at Willow Creek say, you did the right thing. We, I was going to just add one small thing is we've had people tell us to answer your question that the book can be triggering, especially the first half of it. And then they say the second half provides a lot of hope and healing. And we've had others say that the front half of the book gives them language for what they experienced and they've connected. They just had, didn't know what to call what they were experiencing. It made them feel less crazy. Yeah. Well, in the first half of the book really focuses on, hey, this is a problem, right? And then the second half offers some solutions and some strategies moving forward. It's a really I like to it's really I like book. to say it's it's the first third, not the first half. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. It is, it is. Yeah. It is. There's more there's more in the redemptive side than in the critique side. So I wanna um Think about my audience here, maybe a young person, especially um, somebody maybe who's left the church or who is listening to this going, yeah, uh, this is why I don't go to church, right? Um, it's messy. People are screwed up and there's a possibility of horrible things happening. You say early on, and I quote, our book is about wounded healers and wounded resistors, women and men who did the right thing, who told the truth, who suffered rejection, intimidation, and re-victimization but who persevered in telling the truth so the truth would be known. This book is a book about defending the redemptive value of the church while at the same time accepting the truth that broken and fallen people within the church, including pastors and other leaders, will sin sometimes in shameful and damaging ways. So for the person listening, um, who, as I said before, maybe is like, <laughs> that's why I don't go to church, what's the redemptive value of the church? Well, um, this is a this is a great question. My favorite theologian was a German named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> yeah, and Bonhoeffer wrote a famous book called Life Together, uh, in which he made it really clear that people have to surrender. Now I'm going to back off of this a bit um, for the person you want this to be for. Um, he made it very clear that we have to surrender our wish dreams for the church to experience what the church really is. In other words, we can develop idealistic ideas about what the church is. You know, it's this group of people who love Jesus and who are growing in Christ. They're holy, they're peace-loving, etc. And then you encounter real people in the church and they seem to be ornery and some of them are not very peace loving and some of them are not very loving and you think what's going on here well Bonhoeffer said you've got to accept the church for what it is our unity is in Christ not because we agree with one another and the let's say the holiness and the love and the peace that we are is actually in Christ not in our own uh, achievements so this is important to understand that you're going to be in a hospital for sinners more than you're going to be a beach resort, all inclusive for the wealthy and for the holy. Mm. That's not what a church is. But I sympathize with it, with this person because there are too many, too much, there's too much corruption in churches 
because churches have become entertainment centers uh, driven by mega church, mega personalities with mega egos who uh, have too much power, too much money, and the, and the right things are not being focused on. So, but I, I would say um, participate in a church one person at a time. Get to know someone, find someone who's tove, and be with that person and grow with that person and let that grow into, let's say, a pocket of tove. Uh, rather than being taken in and swallowing the great big idea that the church is presenting itself, find people in the church of character and get connected to them. It's funny that you say that, Scott, because I was talking to my bishop yesterday and she said, we're so busy training pastors to be leaders that we don't talk about Jesus anymore. Mm -hmm. That's a big section of our book. <laughs> I'm really big yeah. on this. I, uh, I, I, I've taught for years and years and years that what the church needs to be known for Jesus, not for everything else. I, I'm, uh, I'm really disappointed with the obsession with leadership. Mm -hmm. I think we should be obsessed with followership, mm -hmm. following Jesus. So you, you kind of touched on it, Scott, but it's interesting because uh, last week we had Caleb Kaltenbach on here and we had a great conversation. Um, he has an incredible story of uh, coming to faith and he talked about uh, how the church can do better and especially in relationship to the LGBTQ community. But um, he, in passing, talked about uh, how he loves the mega church. Um, but I've I've read enough of your book and I've heard enough of uh, you talking on podcasts to know that you have some concerns about the mega church model and you just shared a little bit about that. But do you think that the mega church um, can be good, can be tov? Yes, we do. Um. We actually had, we had um, a friend read the manuscript before it went to print and he gave us really good feedback. He felt like we were too hard on the mega church. So we actually softened it quite a bit from what you read. <laughs> um, but it just, the more that we read about churches and accusations and power abuses and celebrity culture, the more suspicious, I think we, dad, you would say the same thing. We both became of the megachurch model and not to say that they're all corrupt, they're not, um, but you have to have a person that has really strong character mm -hmm. to lead a megachurch and not give in to the celebrity culture and the temptations that come with it. Yeah, and yeah, Laura and I have talked about this. Um, okay, let me put it this way, Janelle and uh, Bernice. Only someone with um, a sizable ego wants to be the pastor of a church um, because you're going to stand on a platform and perform in front of people weekly and lead people. And people are going to look to you for spiritual guidance and they, they're going to look to you as the mediator of God in their life. Mm. Uh, it's not hard to move from a calling to serve God to a perception of being godlike to a group of people. 
And that's intoxicating for a personality. And it makes people power hungry and uh, full of ego. All right. So I, I think we have to recognize that this is go always going to be a problem. Um, and I would say that every church, every pastor in every church is tempted to uh, too big of an ego, too narcissistic power mongering. But there's more power and more ego strength in a mega church than anywhere else. So everything good in a church is magnified in a mega church, and everything bad in a church is magnified in a mega church. So, you know, so it just looks worse. It's not that mega churches are worse, it's that their problems are magnified because it's on such a grand scale. I mean, you discover that a pastor in Chicagoland is making $950,000 a year following Jesus, who was a poor man from a hillbilly region in first century Northern Galilee. All right. You think, really, is that what we should be doing? Mm -hmm. um, but and the pastor of a small church in Kansas is not tempted like that. I mean, they, they, they get corn from the farmers and meat from the farmers and, you know, they, they make do, they get by when they retire, they're on social security, you know, they're not, they don't have $10 million in the bank because of the money that they made in a mega church. So um, mega churches present bigger temptations and they, attract bigger egos mm -hmm. i hope that's clear yeah or, or build larger egos perhaps as, yeah yeah because yeah. suddenly you have a successful church where lots and lots of people want to go because as you mentioned everything's amplified you know everything yeah. looks I mean, even better what, what what caleb said i know caleb and um i like mega churches i mean their music is amazing. Their preaching is almost always stunning. Their facilities are just great. I mean, it's wonderful. It's it's easy. The chairs are even easier to sit <laughs> in, you know? The Willow Creek had theater seating that kind of rolled back. It was comfortable. And you could bring your coffee in. Hmm. And all the seats were sloped, so you, everybody, nobody's head was in your way. That's... That's nice. Yeah. Bernice, I'll let you ask one of your questions. I have, I mean, I, I could just keep on going, but I, I know you've got well, some. I'll always have questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> I would love both of your perspective. I think that, you know, we've kind of touched on this as I've been reading with and interacting with a lot of the material that you guys have released around the book. I think that I have seen a lot of the, you know, the wounded resistors are gravitating towards this material. And I'm seeing some clergy who are engaging with the material, some pastors and leaders who are reading it because it's kind of the book of the moment. But I think that the systems of toxic cultures in churches exist because people in the pews don't know and don't really want to know what's going on. So how do we actually reach the majority, like the bulk of our, our churches where change can actually happen? That's a really good question. I, 
I'll let my, the theologian answer it, but I agree with you. When I was a member of the congregation at Willow Creek, I did not see it. It did not, I did not see it until I left and was in a completely different church culture and community. And then I was able to see some of the toxic patterns and habits, but, um, I think it's really hard to be a congregant and, and see all of the culture. You have to almost know what to look for and be willing to see what's there. Um, I would say one thing is that the church culture produces the kind of person that you get. All right. So that's one of the issues. But the other thing is pastors and let's just say platformed people are masters of the image or the persona that is presented on that platform and the people are in love with that persona. That's what they think is the real church. They don't know what goes on behind closed doors and behind the curtains. Uh, some people in the church do, and they don't say anything because the, the glory, the fame, the ambition, uh, the success of the church, et cetera, are, are all part of, of their perception of what's going on, and they don't want to be a part of wrecking it. But um, I think it's really important for people to remember that the persona on the platform is not the person in reality. There are some people who are entirely transparent, but not many. Why do you think that is, Scott? Why, or, or Laura, why? Um... I, I, I do, uh, I, I don't like to like be like a fan <laughs> of a lot of people, but there's this one pastor, his name's Josh White out of Portland, Oregon. I love his preaching. And the reason why I love it is because he's all about number one, Jesus, and second, radical authenticity. He's constantly getting up there and sharing about his faults. Um, but what what prevents pastors from doing that and just being honest about who they are um, and their mistakes in front of congregants. Well, I think that that's not what people expect of a pastor. They expect a pastor to be someone who can mediate God to them. And that they're, you know, I tell my students, um, the people in your church are going to expect you to be a better Christian than they are probably. They expect you to be ahead of them in order to lead them in doing what's right as Christians. So you expect your pastor to be good. I wouldn't want a pastor to get up there and confess faults all the time. I think I'd say, okay, mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to figure out why you are a pastor then. Because I, I think I go in the direction of expecting my pastor to be a really good Christian. Not perfect. Uh, you know, they, they get mad and they struggle and get depressed and get tired of it all and lash out at times. Okay, that's the way it is. Um, but I expect them to be really good and, and honest about their Christian life uh, with integrity. Well, so. We, and I, I think too, now in the rise of social media, we have this, um, this inauthentic authenticity, like this very cultivated, 
personality or persona of, of being an authentic person that it's not necessarily good uh, for a person to just be up there and, and share all their deepest stuff. Like we mm -hmm. want people to be authentic and open in their safe and small communities, but we wouldn't ask, you know, anyone to just walk up on the stage and confess their darkest sin. That's not the place for that. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, Bernice, I grew up in a world that was the opposite of that. That that's we. If a pastor started doing that, uh, my parents would have found a different church. <laughs> really? Um, oh yeah. Uh, there was a all of us all of a sudden sort of a, a it was hip to be authentic, mm. and to be authentic was to show that you're no different than anyone else. I can remember when I was young in seminary and even as a seminary student uh teachers saying that's not what people are looking for in their pastor they don't want them to be like everybody else they want them to be in that sense a better follower of jesus so they can help them grow in following jesus not perfect not sinless but better i that's the way i look at it hmm. so so that's an interesting point, because then you have this pressure cooker, right? You have this sense of, uh, don't be an authentic, be, you know, who you are, <laughs> like, we, we can uh, spot a fake, but then uh, please be better than we are. And so do you think that pastors, because ministry is hard, you know, I've definitely had quite a few pastors on this program. Um, what is a, how can a pastor uh, exhibit Tove? What, what is uh, a remedy for somebody in pastoral leadership? Uh, obviously, Scott, you help yeah, train yeah. future pastors. Well, I would, um, um, I would say if you don't want to be a Christian with integrity, get out of the business, if I can call it. You know, get out of the ministry. Okay. All right. How can they be tove? I think they have to draw close to God constantly in prayer, in Bible reading, in fellowship with others, uh, to take their example in Jesus, to show the marks of empathy, practice the habits of empathy, grace, uh, telling the truth, serving one another, doing the right thing, doing justice, uh, putting people first in their life, uh, all, and, and, you know, just being generally Christ-like. I like to call it Christiformity. Um, that's what I think they're called to do. Uh, I, I tell my students all the time, mm -hmm. your first calling is to be a Christian. That's who you are, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus, I tell my students. Sounds kind of simple, <laughs> uh, but it's not as simple as it, as it sounds. And so, um, the pressure, uh, I don't know about that. I think I would want to use the word discipline. Do you have the discipline to want to be a good Christian? Of course, not sinless. But if you don't want to be a good Christian, then I don't think you should be in the ministry. Well, and I think that it's so easy to lose that. There's so many people who go in with that good yeah. spirit and that good heart, but then the the popularity of the church, the value of the mission, you know, all the good that the church is doing becomes the valuable thing. Mm -hmm. 
And so then when it's all the good that you're trying to accomplish, well, you can kind of be willing to mess up the edges a little bit or make people mad or whatever for the sake of the good. Um, Laura can talk about this a bit probably, but um, we hire in churches on the basis of skills and talents, not on the basis of character. And that is a big mistake. Um, and so talents get magnified as long as that sermon is good and that music is captivating and the imagery is fascinating. Um, and we go away filled, joyous, challenged, comforted. We're okay. If you so look we're, at, oh, we're, we're, yeah. No, I was going to say, if you look at some of the job descriptions that churches put out there when they're looking for a new pastor they're not really looking for a pastor they're looking for a ceo type a leader but the qualifications that they're looking for are not going to land them the pastor that my dad just described well it's so much easier to screen for skills than it is to screen for character right oh yeah right it's a much deeper process, thoughtful process to look for. I, Bernice, I tell people all the time, uh, we, we have too many lawyers on the search committees and not enough psychologists. You know, psychologists <laughs> see and hear things different when, when someone's being interviewed. They'll say, oh, that's a narcissist. And the lawyer says, this people, this person will make it happen. Uh, and I'm not, I, I'm stereotyping. Uh, we'll leave it with that. But I, I do believe that that we need to be better judges of character and learn how to do this better um, and to shift away from our exclusive preoccupation with talent and skills and what is performed on that platform. So I think you touched on it earlier um, when you talked about how a pastor can be good, but how can a church culture be good? How can it be told? Well, we kind of, not kind of, we do um, get to that in the circle of Tove in our book, we list habits that nurture goodness. So to create a culture of goodness, we want to see resisting the narcissism culture, like we want to look for empathy and grace. And we kind of touched just on this already, but in the circle of Tove, putting people first, telling the truth, we saw a lot of um, protecting image instead of owning the truth and telling it and healing from it. Justice, resisting loyalty, serving others, resisting the celebrity culture, and above all, nurturing Christ-likeness will hopefully, those habits will hopefully usher in a culture of goodness over time. Yeah. Laura, I once had a person in ministry say to me that the church is not about people. It's about worshiping God. But in your guys' book, um, you or your dad say that a Christ-like church culture always has its eyes on people because the mission of the church is all about God's redemptive love for people. Do you believe it's possible to worship God without loving the people around us? Ooh, that's a good question. Not well, the story of a 
uh, A.W. Tozer is that, isn't it? Uh, if you know the story of Tozer, his wife, Tozer died young or younger, and his wife lived on, and she said that her new husband loved her. Uh, Aiden, A.W. Tozer, loved God, but not her. Mm. Um, yes, it is possible to be someone who is obsessed with, let's say, something like worship of God and not love others. But that, I think, I think John would tell us, we can't love and worship God if we don't love others. So there is something deeply dysfunctional and malformed in the person who is good at worship, but is bad at loving others. So mm -hmm. I think I'd say no. Well, I think that we have, you know, especially like with the example of uh, the conversation about Mark Driscoll has come back to the kind of the front. And we have an example there of someone who said all the right things. You know, we had the correct theology, but if your correct theology doesn't make you loving, if your correct theology doesn't make you Christ-like, then it is not correct theology. I want to say his theology wasn't correct too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But, well, but I know I, there are some, uh, he's such a hard head. Um, th there are many reformed people who have a completely different disposition and character than Mark Driscoll. So mm -hmm. to me, even when he was talking his reformed theology, there was a distortion of it by his personality. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's gotten worse. I'm, it's sad. Yeah. So for the person listening who's like, yeah, I'm not going back to church. Um, <laughs> why, why should, why should they? Why, why even consider being part of church when obviously, you know, I know that there, it can be good. We were talking about the things that could, uh, you know, empathy and compassion, all these different things. But what benefit is it to somebody who feels like, yeah, I was part of a toxic church culture. I got out of there. I felt ostracized. I felt like I couldn't talk. I couldn't have a voice. I was told by a pastor, maybe some pastoral abuse happened, you know, whatever. And now I have nowhere to go. And why would I ever give that a shot again? Well, part of the reason we wrote this book is because of experiences like that. And we wanted people to know that that's not right. That is not God's design mm -hmm. for the church. And no church is perfect, but certainly zero churches should be treating people the way that you just described. There should not be power abuses or yeah. sexual abuses. There should not be false narratives and spinning stories and covering the truth. And I guess I would want to tell people that what you experienced is not right. And there's hope because there's a better way in how God designed the church to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would say that too. I, I would say there is a better way, but I, I sympathize with those people. I yeah. would say, you know, you've been through the ringer and you don't trust, you don't trust church leaders and you don't trust people in the church. And I don't blame you. Well, and I think it's interesting, Laura, that you said that there's a better way, um, because I first encountered your work, Scott, when I had been through the church hurt, the whole thing, and um, I had kind of fallen out and was 
sort of spiraling and trying to figure out, is there a better way to be a Christian? Is there a way to live out this faith that doesn't look like that? And so that's kind of when I kind of sort of crash landed into the blue parakeet. Mm -hmm. And I became a part of this story that there is a better way. There is a different way. And I think that's where I would really encourage someone too. You don't have to go back to a church just like the one that you left. There's another way. There's a better way to be a Christian that doesn't involve abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Bernice, I've heard many people say that that's the value of megachurches is you can go and just sit there and nobody knows who you are and you don't know anybody else and you can participate in the i would say the trappings of church or the public surface of church but church that is not fellowship and life together is not what church is designed to be and the people who've been burned and hurt like that are people i sympathize with i think i i i see what you're doing I, I think there's there's time for you to grow and to heal and to find the church community where where you can trust people. That's what I would put it that way. I mean, yeah, it's there's a better way, but it doesn't mean it, that you're going to find it tomorrow. And I think it takes a long time to find a church in which you feel comfortable. I don't think that happens overnight. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a great conversation. I know uh, we're, we need to wrap up here, but real quick for someone listening, where can they find out more about you guys? We have a website, churchcalledtove.org. And that'd be probably the first place to go. My dad's very active on his Substack um, website, and we're very active on Twitter too. You can find us there. Awesome. And uh, Bernice, she has the final question. We always ask one final question. I'd love for both of you to answer this. The Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Of those four gifts that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ, which stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? I, I would say for me right now, authenticity. Um. And love, I think, is is connected to it. But um, for me, the church uh, and the gospel, Jesus, is about uh, seeing myself authentically, seeing the world authentically, and learning to see things the way God sees things and to live in that world that God has made for us. I was also leaning towards authenticity, being who you are, telling the truth. Um, the whole story with Willow Creek was such a journey and was so disorienting for me personally and for others that I know, because it was this institution that I trusted that was lying, was not telling the truth. And um, it really... Um, it was disturbing. I, I guess I used the word disorienting, but authenticity, I think, has become a big guiding factor yeah. in what I look for. Mm. Well, Scott McKnight, Laura Ber Berenger, and Bernice Craig, 
you guys, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been delightful and challenging in a good way. And I'm just really thankful for your work. And I'm looking forward to reading your next book. And uh, we'll be sure to link uh, in the show notes um, the different ways that people can find you. But thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It was really wonderful to be with you. Yeah. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.